Hey, can we just uh, thank the team for leading us in worship today? Thank you guys so much. Awesome. Love you guys. Hey, we're so excited. We're starting a brand new series today that we're calling Modern Parenting. You know, one of the things that we said consistently throughout our all-in uh, journey, the discipleship journey we believe God's calling us uh, as a church to, is that we want to be super intentional about coming alongside parents or families to partner with parents, right, as an additional resource in the raising of their children. We want to be another voice or a chorus of voices that just time and time again point our children to Jesus, right? And there's a wonderful psalm, I think, that proclaims the primary responsibility that parents have when it comes to raising children. Here's what it says, Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. And this is our goal. Really, any adult in the room, whether you're a parent, whether you're a foster parent, whether you're a grandparent, um, I mean, this is our marching orders, right? Uh, to proclaim God's might, His grace, His mercy, uh, to point children to the sufficiency of Jesus. And this, what this verse really does is it reminds us that a parent's primary responsibility is to consistently point their kids to Jesus just again and again and again and again. And isn't it true that it's so easy in our culture to think or to get lulled into thinking that our primary responsibility as parents is anything but that? I mean, we can get lulled into thinking that our primary job is to prepare our kids academically or help them get good grades, you know, or to, or to help them get a good job or to participate in sports so they can be super well-rounded, right? But I think what the psalmist reminds us of here today is that you could do all those things and still fail as a parent if you've not consistently uh, again and again and again pointed your children to the sufficiency you know, of Jesus. And I hear parents lament all the time the choices that their children are making um, or the things that their children have grown up to believe. And this is why we think it's so important that parents be connected to a community of Christ followers so that we can, again, partner with them to be that voice that would continue to point them to Jesus as well. Now, when it comes to family ministry, I want to kind of frame that for a minute. If you've ever read through the story of the book of Genesis, you know it's a story about family. I mean, it, Genesis doesn't begin as a story about a nation or armies or organizations or corporations, but the theme of the book of Genesis is families. And if you ever paid any attention when you read through the book of Genesis, you know that all of those families are deeply, even disturbingly, disturbingly dysfunctional. In fact, I'm going to make a statement that's going to surprise uh, many of you, and that's this. There are almost no good examples of family in the Bible. Really. 
in fact, I want to say there are no good examples of family in the Bible, but one of two of you might be able to come up and prove me wrong. However, when it comes to examples of family dysfunction, the Bible is chock full of them. So just in the book of Genesis, let's just tease this out. What do families look like in the book of Genesis? Here we go. You ready? Cain envies and murders his brother Abel. Uh, Lamech murders someone and then brags about it to intimidate his wives. And notice I said wives in the plural. Lamech is the man who brought polygamy to the human race. Noah, who's called the most righteous man of his generation, setting the bar kind of low, uh, gets so intoxicated in his tent one day that he passes out without any clothes on. And when one of his sons finds him in this condition, Noah pronounces a formal curse on this son. Abraham lies and says that his wife Sarah is really his sister because he's afraid that a powerful man is going to want his wife in his harem. And Abraham does this not just once, but twice. He then has a child with Sarah's maid and then eventually abandons both that child and that child's mother. His other son, Isaac, and his wife spend their lives playing favorites with their two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives his dad, cheats his brother out of his inheritance or birthright, so his brother Esau ends up spending years trying to get revenge on Jacob by killing him. Jacob then goes on to marry two different women. He has children with both of them and with both of their servants. He favors one of his sons so much, Joseph, that his other brothers want to kill him. And they end up deciding instead simply to sell their brother into slavery. But then they go home and lie about this to their dad, allowing him to think uh, instead that Joseph is dead. And so they live this lie and cover it up for years, even decades. Anybody here feel better about your family at this point? I hope you do, right? I mean, these, every one of the families in Genesis would all be prime candidates for the Jerry Springer show. Every single one of them. These people needed professional help. They needed a doctor, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Who, Dr. Spock, Dr. Lard, Dr. Phil, somebody. They need professional help, right? And this is just the first book of the Bible. And what I love about the Bible is that the writer of Genesis does not try to cover that up. See, this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible is reliable and inspired by God. Because men don't write a book like the Bible. They don't. It is not a man-glorifying book. It is a God-glorifying book. And so it exposes the worst sins of all of its saints. And this should tell us something else. It is such a powerful reminder that there is no such thing as a perfect parent, a perfect son, or a perfect daughter. And, and that families, all families, are dysfunctional because all families are made up of imperfect and sinful people. 
See? Now, some families hide it better than others. You don't see dysfunction in family portraits, but make no mistake about it, it's there. It is. And one other thing that's so encouraging. It is through these families in the book of Genesis, these strange, dysfunctional, messed up families, that God is present and working to keep the dream of life with God alive. This is so incredible to me, right? And here's what this means for the church. This is what, when, when a church thinks about coming alongside families and doing family ministries, here's what the church is not meant to be. The church is not a place for successful, together, healthy families to come together and smugly congratulate themselves on how well they're doing. You know why? Because we just said, right, there's no such thing as a family that doesn't at least have some level of dysfunction in it. Instead, this tells us this about the local church. The local church should be a place for people and families that are broken and marred by sin to come and confess our need for God and His grace and mercy in our lives every single day. So today, um, I want to frame this. Um, so again, this is a series on parenting. Um, and if, so if you're here today, um, this, for anybody that like, has a younger child in their life that they'd like to influence, again, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or a foster parent or um, you know, a, a godmother or a godfather or maybe you work with children, this is a series for you. But what's interesting is I'm going to talk uh, even though this is a series on parenting, I'm not going to talk a lot about parenting today. Instead, I'm going to frame the conversation about family. Um, so here's the parenting principle we're going to springboard off of and spend our morning talking about together. The parent, parenting principle number one is this. The best gift that parents can give to their child is a healthy marriage. Uh, this principle is preeminent to parenting. It's vital to parenting. And it's very, very discouraging for some of you um, who are listening to me right now. And I get that, and we're going to talk about that discouragement in just a minute. But I do want you to notice before we move on that I said a healthy marriage, not a perfect marriage. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Because a marriage is nothing more than the coming together of two people who are both imperfect and sinful. And that's why fireworks and sparks fly in your home from time to time, right? And we have to acknowledge that. Um, it, it, listen, uh, we're going to talk a lot about this today, but uh, moving toward a healthy marriage is one of the most challenging things that I have to do. And I'm married to an incredible woman, um, but yet uh, we do not have a perfect marriage. And if you interviewed my wife for about five minutes, you would come to the same exact conclusion. You would. That, you know, it's work, and, and it's why it's so important that we give the gift of a healthy marriage to our children. 
Um, and for some of us, this is super discouraging because it feels out of reach. I mean, you know, my past is my past, and um, it feels unattainable. In other words, you're here and you're thinking, well, that's great, Pastor, because I have children, but I'm divorced. Or, well, that's great, Pastor, because I have children, but I'm single. And, um, you know, that's, not in, that's out of my reach right now. And, and, and I get that. Um, and so if that's your situation, I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm so glad that um, I, just kind of buckle up because we're going to encourage you, I promise. Uh, there's encouraging news for you here this morning. Uh, but, but let me frame this. For years, there's been a push in our society to divorce parenting from marriage. In other words, it's easier to isolate parenting to a standalone topic that is divorced from the idea of a nuclear family. And by nuclear family, I mean a home that contains a mom and a dad and children all living under one roof. And so as fewer and fewer households across our country contain a nuclear family, society has been forced to move toward parenting as more of a standalone topic. And I get that. But to divorce parenting from marriage is to steal something valuable from our children and our grandchildren. If we refuse to point them to what is ideal, because what is ideal has been out of reach for us, then we are stealing that possibility, the possibility of that for them. And we are creating a vision for the future that can be harmful, especially to women and children. And I'll make that case in a few minutes. Now, one of the things that I did to prepare for this series was I listened to a series of messages that Andy Stanley gave at North Point Community Church in Atlanta just last fall. Uh, it was also a parenting series. It was a series called Parenting in the 21st Century. It's an excellent series. Uh, in fact, I'm getting ready to use some language. The language that I'm going to use, the, the language of real and ideal, I'm just stealing directly from him his bullet fit my gun um, and so uh, I got this insight from him and I want to give credit where credit is due but he used this language of what is real in our families versus what is ideal and so as I use this language the rest of the morning just be aware that that comes from him now, when we use words like real and ideal, there's kind of an uncomfortable tension that starts to rise up and surface in a room like this um, because ideal, as we said, feels unattainable. Ideal feels out of reach for me, right? So we can be guilty, therefore, of trying to put ideal out of sight and out of mind because it just doesn't match, you know, my life, right? So here's what I'm saying. In the church, we should be among the first to take into account the reality of dysfunction in our own families. In other words, the church should be the first one to speak into what is actually going on and happening in our homes. But at the same time, 
like Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, we should also point people to an ideal, to a better vision or a better version of your future, to what should be or could be, or to what God says is best, right? See, if we remove ideal out of the equation because it's out of reach for us, we simply ensure that it will remain out of reach for the generations that follow. See, and this tension between what is real and what is ideal is actually at the heart of the gospel. It's one of the reasons that I love the gospel so much. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that the gospel is this. It's so simple. You ready? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That is the good news. And here's what I want you to notice. The gospel assumes sin. It assumes dysfunction. It assumes what is real. But then it also points us to an ideal, which is a life free from the power of sin and death as we walk with and trust in Jesus every single day so just before i came up here worship team lead led us through a song for god so loved what the world what well the question is what world our broken world our fallen world our hurting world our dysfunctional world see Jesus always begins with us in what is real, where we are, right? Jesus did this so well. Do you realize that Jesus condemned the condemners and then he died for the condemned? Think about that, how powerful that is. You know, so for example, you know, Jesus raised the bar, always uh, talked about an ideal. Let me give you some examples. So, um, in his Sermon on the Mount, for example, he talked about adultery. And he said, hey, I know that the word on the street is adultery is when one man puts his hands on another man's wife. That's adultery. That's what everybody thought adultery was, right? And then Jesus comes along and says, no, he raised the bar. He said, no, that's not what adultery is at all. I tell you that any time a man looks at a woman lustfully, he commits adultery with her in his heart. You see how he kind of raised the bar on that? Uh, see, here's what I need you to know. Jesus always met people in what was real, but then he pointed them every time to the ideal. Um, he just raised the bar so incredibly high again and again and again. Um, so, for example, he redefines adultery to include every single man on the planet, and then he died to pay for all of their adultery. My adultery. Your adultery. He died to pay for it all. Uh, so let's take marriage, for example. Right? Jesus raised the bar to an extraordinarily high level for marriage. In fact, he raised the bar so high that at the end of this teaching, and we'll look at it in a minute, uh, his disciples kind of looked at one another and they looked at Jesus and they said, look, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's just better not to get married in the first place. I mean, that's how high Jesus raised the bar. So let's kind of look at what he said together. 
This is Matthew 19, verses 3 through 10. So some Pharisees, these are religious teachers, they came to test Jesus. In other words, they're trying to catch him in a contradiction or, or out-argue him, right? Catch him in a, um, yeah, in a contradiction. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, I don't want to just gloss over this. In this day, and we've talked about this before, women were considered property, and so a husband could do what he wanted with his wife. If she displeased him in any way, he could issue her a certificate of divorce. So, I'm not making this up. If a wife burned the toast... And a husband didn't like that. He could give her a certificate of divorce. I'm not saying that was right or what God wanted. I'm, I'm just telling you that's what was. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, is, it, is that true? Can a husband divorce his wife because she burned the toast? And Jesus replies, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate what what jesus is saying is you can't unone what god has made one you can't unone what god has made one and so but they're not happy with that answer so they say well okay if that's true why then did moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away and Jesus latches onto this because there was no command of Moses to do that. So Jesus responds and says, no, that's not right. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not meant to be this way from the beginning. And then Jesus says something that just pulls out all the stops, just brings a gasp to his audience. And he says, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, in other words, he's saying, look, a man can't divorce his wife for any and every reason. There's only one. There's only one reason, except for marital unfaithfulness. I tell you that any wife who, man who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Now let's wade in to the heaviness of this, how high Jesus is raising the bar. What he's saying is that if a man divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual infidelity and then marries someone else, that man is committing adultery. I mean, this is... I mean, the bar is just like so high, right? Um, and this is why at the end of this teaching, the disciples kind of look at one another and they're like, well, if this, is the, if this is how high the bar is, people probably shouldn't get married. I mean, hey, Jesus, that just seems so unrealistic. That seems so out of reach. Wait, you're saying marriage is meant to be permanent? What, you're saying you hate divorce? What about divorced people? You know what Jesus would say to that? He would say, well, I'm going to give my life for divorced people. 
I'm going to give my life for them. See, this is the beauty of the gospel, friends. Jesus consistently raised the bar morally. He pointed people to an ideal. And then do you know what he did? He dialed up the grace. He just dialed up the grace. Every time the bar went higher, the grace went, came out more. I mean, you know, we just came out of the Christmas season, right? And the message of Christmas is that Jesus came. He came, right? He showed up. When nobody else was seeking you out, Jesus came to save you and to save me. And I don't think there's a better chapter in the Bible to illustrate the message of Christmas than John 1. And John, 1, John is telling us here, right, that Jesus came, that He showed up. But I want you to notice as we read these couple of verses how Jesus came. And then we're going to make some observations about that. This is John 1, verses 14, and then verses 16 and 17. It says, the Word became flesh. Now, we know this is a reference to Jesus because a little earlier in the book of John, He told us that Jesus was the Word. Right? So he's saying, uh, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. How did he come from the Father? Full of grace and truth. And then he says in verse 16, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another because God is so gracious over and over and over again and again and again then he says in verse 17 for the law was given through Moses but something better than the law has come grace has come and truth has come and those things come through Jesus Christ this is so beautiful to me and often when we read these verses we think well Jesus came and he was this perfect balance you know and so the goal for us is to be a balance of grace on the one hand and truth you know on the other and I want to I want to I want to say this I I think nothing could be further from the truth I do not think that's what this verse is teaching I think this verse is teaching that Jesus was full on grace and full-on truth all the time. He was a full dose of grace and a full dose of truth in any given situation. There was never a moment in Jesus' life or ministry when He, did, when he wasn't all truth and all grace at the same time. So the question becomes, how do we parent um, you know, in such a way that we, with our children and with those that are going to come behind us, where, where we parent with full grace and full truth. How do we do that, right? Uh, so here's how. We, we meet our kids where they are in what is real, exactly the way that God has met us, and we continue to point our kids to an ideal. We don't put the ideal out of sight and out of mind simply because it's out of reach for us or for me. Because we want better for our children, right? Um, so let me tell you what the ideal is. Because Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew 19, right? The ideal is two parents, a man and a woman, raising children in a partnership under one roof. 
And let me tell you, you know, even when it's ideal, it ain't easy. Aside from uh, work, work, the work that I do on my marriage, the, the second hardest thing I've ever done is parenting. And, and listen, that was with two people on the same team. This is why I have such respect for single parents. I don't know how you do it. I mean, look, we could even play like man-on-man man for a while with our kids, right? She could take one, I could take one, and then that formula got blown up when our third kid came along. We, could, we had to do a zone, you know, from that point on, right? But it was so hard, even with a man and a woman under roof. And so I don't know how anyone does it as a single parent. I have such respect uh, for you. I'm so, so glad that you're going to be here with us for this series. Uh, but here's why it's so important. Children, listen to me, look at me. Children need the perspective of a mom and a dad. They need a mix of male and female. Our male children need to know what it's like to be a male. And they learn that from a dad. Our female children need to learn, right, what it looks like to be a female. And they learn that from mom. And I can't tell you how many times just my perspective, my, how my maleness shaped our kids versus the femaleness of my wife. Um, and, so, you know, that's, that's the ideal. And, and we, we kind of know this, right, because... When the nuclear family is the exception rather than the rule, we all know what happens. The government is forced to step in and help raise children. And local school districts have to step in and feed those children. And all kinds of agencies get created to protect those children. We all know that, and we all want better than that for our own kids. Listen, some of you have gone to great lengths to make sure that your children are being raised in places that reflect your values, even when your personal situation falls short of that. And I just think that is so commendable. And because the reality is all of us fall short, right? I mean, you do know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? In other words, when I get to the cross, I can't say, well, hey, you know, uh, they needed the cross more than I needed the cross, or she needed the cross worse than I needed the cross. No, the ground is level. We all need the cross equally. None of us would find our way into a relationship with God or a heavenly inheritance apart from from the cross, right? Um, so you just need to be commended for partnering with agencies that affirm your values even when you haven't been able to live up to your values because there's times where I don't live up to my values either. Again, the ground at the cross is level, right? So when we say that we want to be a church that is intentional about coming alongside families, we mean we want to meet families right where they are, right in the dysfunction that exists in every family. But at the same time, we want to point them to something better, we're going to meet them in what is real. We're going to address the sin and the dysfunction. But we're not going to give up on pointing them to what is 
ideal. So important that we understand this, right? Now, um, when you love your kids, I mean, anybody that's been a parent for more than about five minutes gets this. When you love your children, you want what is best for them, don't you? And listen, when you want what's best for them, you know what that also has to mean? It has to mean that you don't want to be told that everything is fine just so you can feel better about yourself. You want, because you want more than that and better for your children, right? Listen, here's the bottom line. When it comes to parenting, marriage matters. And it matters a lot. Any attempt to downplay its role is not only misguided, it's tragic because it steals away the better future that we want for our kids and our grandkids. And make no mistake, women and children will pay the highest price. They always do. Parenting is, first and foremost, about preparing our children for the challenges that they will face. And there is no relationship, there will be no relationship that will be more challenging in their lives than their marriage relationship. And so you know what that means? They need to see how that's done. They need to see how that's lived out in a way that's healthy. Not perfect. You know, perfection should be eliminated from any conversation about families. But they need to see two people working hard who are able to apologize to one another. We're going to talk a lot more about that. And they need to see that lived out because one day they'll be the ones that need to issue an apology or accept an apology or receive an apology. And if we don't teach them how to do that, we set them up to fail in the most important arena of their entire lives, right? And here's the kind of the cool thing about this. Our shortcomings, yours and mine, they can serve as a catalyst for our children to climb to heights that might be out of reach for some of us. So as a church, we've got to start with what's real, where, where people are, and Jesus did this so well, right? We must, but at the same time, as we have conversations about what is real, we can't give up on what is ideal. Jesus never did that, and neither should we. So let's resist anything that has the potential to steal the dream of family away from our kids. They deserve to see and experience the inner workings of a healthy marriage. Because one day, their marriage, as I said a moment ago, will be the greatest challenge of their lives. And they need to see that it can be done. They need to believe that it can be done. They need to be prepared for how to do that. And this is why. So, you know, most of you, when you think about a parenting series, you, or a, you think this, well, okay, we're going to talk about behavior, and, you know, and listen, we're going to talk a little bit about behavior, but behavior is not going to be the main focus of this series. 
This is a series about how to have a healthy relationship with your children so that when they grow up and leave your home, your home is a home they want to come back to and live in, and they still want to have a relationship with you when they're out of the house. This is a series that focuses on relationships, not behavior. And here's why this is so important. You know what? You can send your kids off to the best schools. You can make sure they do their homework every night. You can make sure they're studious and they get great grades. You can make sure your kids get a fantastic job. But if you've not taught your kids how to do relationships well, they will lose that job the first month they have it. Listen, relationships are what makes life work. Relation, knowing how to have and be in relationships with other people is what makes someone successful ultimately and especially in their spiritual lives because the Bible is so incredibly relational and the law of Jesus is so incredibly relational. And so next week, we're going to look together at, because Jesus didn't talk a lot about parenting, but he gave a command that lays the foundation that any home needs to be built on. And we're going to begin to unpack that together next week. In the meantime, I want to invite our praise team to come on up. Um, and uh, I want to say a couple things just as, about how we're going to respond together here today. Uh, listen, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a room, gotten down on my knees, and had a conversation with God, and hear God say back to me, my grace is sufficient for you. When it comes to parenting, whether you're a single parent, whether you're married, um, it is the hardest thing we will ever do. And you need God's grace. You need God's grace and mercy for that. And I'm so grateful that Jesus has promised that he will always meet us right where we are, right in what is real. Isn't it good that we have a Savior like that? Even when we fall short, and we all do, he's so good. So how do you worship a God like that? We, man, you worship a God like that with all your heart, you you stay engaged in the lyrics and you think about what you're singing and you live in the moment and you focus on Him. And that's what we're going to do together. Before we do that, you can also, during that time, you can bring an offering to God if you believe that's the uh, way He's calling you to worship Him. You can, uh, you can pray with someone. Brandon will talk to you more about that um, after we worship together. But I do want to say a word about our all-in journey. You may have noticed I do have my all-in t-shirt on. You're thinking... Pastor, I saw that the whole month of December. We're out of that all-in series. We're starting this series on parenting, so why are you still wearing the T-shirt? Those of you who got close to me this morning, you're thinking, Pastor, you really should wash that T-shirt once in a while. You can't rely on social distancing, you know, forever. But I want to talk about why I have this on yet today. 
You know, we've told you again and again, we feel called to move out, be more intentional about um, getting our hands dirty, meeting needs in our community, not just telling people in our community that Jesus loves them, but being a church that shows people in our community that Jesus loves them. And that means we've got to go out and we've got to purchase stuff. We've got to buy buildings and you know, homes and uh, stuff to do ministry out of. But the reality is we can't, we can't buy anything if we don't know what our budget is. In other words, if we don't know how much money we have to do that. I mean, it's just like in your home, right? You can't go out and buy stuff unless you know that you have, you're going to have the money to pay for that. And so this is why it's so important that every family in our church make a commitment to our all-in journey even if you're not going to make a bigger commitment, let's say you're just going to give what you gave last year, we need to hear from you and we need to know um, what's going to come in so that we can then um, budget and be responsible as we try to move out into our community, right? So it's so important, if you haven't uh, taken advantage of the opportunity to make a commitment to that, that you do that today or that you do that soon, um, because otherwise we're kind of shackled in um, what we can and can't do, and again, until we, we know who's with us and who we can count on. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, so, you know, just continue to seek God about what He wants you to do for that. All right, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to worship together. Let's, uh, let's talk to our Heavenly Father together. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful. I'm so grateful that you met me one day in all the real junk in my life, and that every day your grace has been sufficient for me. I pray for those of us that are struggling, whether it be in our marriages or as parents um, or other relationships. God, I pray that they would, would know that your grace is sufficient yet for them as well. I pray that your grace would be sufficient for them today and tomorrow and this week. Um, I pray you'd speak hope into their hearts and their minds, that you would speak the encouragement that it won't always be this way or feel this way. And God, just remind them how deeply, how profoundly you love them. So God, as we, um, as we sing together, keep us mindful of just how great and merciful and gracious you really are.